Joan Hogan welcoming you to the Prairie Doc radio program. Rick Holm, our Prairie Doc, is unable to be with us today. He's been unable to be with us the whole month, but the report is he is smiling. He's been smiling all month. He's been traveling through Florida. Now he's on a sailboat. The man is happy. I understand he'll be on this program next week. We can only hope. But in his absence, I'm really pleased to have Dr. Deb Johnston here. She's a family medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. She was with us last week. Deb, it's really good to have you here. It is so good to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure when you're here. You have that bright, smiling face, (laughs) and you're ready to talk medicine. I'm ready to talk about anything somebody wants to talk about. So call in. Give us some questions. I think that'd be great. I had requested about 10 minutes ago, I was here earlier with Bob and said, give us a call. And we mean it. It's 692-1430. You have any medical questions, we'd be glad to discuss them. I know that this might be over-talked about, but I don't know if you can ever over-talk the flu. The flu. The flu. So why don't you give us an update on what's happening now? Well, we're still seeing flu. We're still admitting people to the hospital with influenza and complications of influenza, and we don't know when our season is going to peak. So it is not too late to get your flu shot. It takes about uh, almost two weeks to have your body respond to the flu shot and help protect you. And I know that there's a lot of kind of information out there saying, oh, the flu shot's no good this year. And it's, we have certainly had years where the flu shot has been more effective, but 85 to 90% of the deaths that have been related to influenza have been in unvaccinated people. So it's not perfect. The flu shot is not perfect, but it's the best we've got. So go out there and get your flu shot. It's really important. Well, Deb, that percentage you gave just now needs to be repeated. 85 to 95% of the people of the people who actually die, die from, from the flu, of the flu did not have the flu shot. And there have been a lot of previously healthy individuals dying from influenza, and it can be very fulminant. It can go very quickly. So um, people get very sick. Not everybody, of course. I mean, most people get the flu and, and are miserable for a while and then get better. But some people don't. So don't be one of those people. Go get your flu shot. Get your head out of the sand and go and get, get your flu, flu shot. shot. And I'm not, I haven't looked around. I know mm-hmm. the clinic still has them. I would guess a lot of the pharmacies I've, still do too. I have not heard anything about a shortage yet oh, this great. year. Okay. So you can go get your get your flu shot at the pharmacy, at the clinic. Uh, just get it. Doesn't matter where, just get it. Now some people get a mild cold and then think, oh, I was so lucky it wasn't the flu. Can they get the shot when they're sick or after the, when do you think? I I have no problem as long as people aren't really sick, giving them the flu shot while they've got a cold or mild strep throat or anything else. So there's very few reasons not to get the flu shot. Okay. And even if you've had influenza, say you came in and you had influenza A when I tested you and you can still get the flu shot and you should still get the flu shot because there are multiple different strains circulating the current flu shot that we have this season protects you from four of those strains so if you get influenza i don't know which strain it was it might be one that's in the vaccine it might be one that's not but even if it is one that's in the vaccine there's three other strains that that shot can help 
help you with. So get your flu shot, even if you've had the flu. And it's important to, to recognize, because I see this a lot, and I'll admit doctors contribute to it, the flu that we're protecting you from is not the upset stomach, vomiting, diarrhea flu that people get. It is the ache all over, exhausted, sore throat, cough, headache, influenza. Sometimes people will get a little stomach symptoms with it too, but for the most part, it's a respiratory illness. So influenza and the stomach flu are not the same thing. The stomach flu really isn't a flu, is it? No. It's a stomach it's, something. It's a, <laughs> usually a virus that's oh. a different virus that causes what we call viral gastroenteritis, but everybody just calls it the flu. It's different. Okay. Can I ask you a question, Dr. Of Johnson? Of course. What are the differences then? So you're laying at home and you don't feel well, and you wonder, do I have a cold or do I have influenza? How can you tell? Is there one certain <laughs> symptom that outweighs the others? There, there's a couple of things when I'm talking to an individual that um, kind of directs me in one direction or the other. The first is severity of illness. Regular old colds just tend not to be that severe. People are miserable, but they're still pretty functional. Um, another is the suddenness of onset. Influenza usually hits people like a ton of bricks. Um, it's really common for people to come in and tell me it started 3.30 yesterday afternoon. Whereas with the regular colds, oh, you know, a couple days ago I started with a scratchy throat, and then I started sneezing, and then I started coughing. And it's not that way with influenza. Influenza usually hits people full-blown just really suddenly. Another thing is fever. Now you can get fever with regular respiratory infections, regular colds, and kids do a lot. I don't see nearly as many fevers in grown-ups with colds. So if I see a grown-up in my office and they've got a 102 temperature, my suspicion that this is influenza is a lot higher. So what do you do? So most of the time with colds, we will tell you yeah, you know, there's nothing to do. You just got to take your chicken noodle soup, try some honey. It's a great cough medication. Maybe if you're older, we'll talk about some over-the-counter medicines that help you feel better, and you wait it out. And if you're not getting better after 10 to 14 days, then maybe it's time for an antibiotic or at least time to get looked at. Um, with influenza, we have an anti-influenza medicine. We have Tamiflu and Relenza that can help people, although that's a little controversial. There's people that think, you know, the side effects really outweigh the benefit. The studies say that people get better like one day faster. I think all of us have stories about people who just had miraculous turnarounds with those medicines, but scientifically, it only seems to shorten things a little bit. People that are at high risk, it might help them stay out of the hospital. You know, it, it, it can be beneficial, but the thing is you've really got to start that within 24 to 4. Uh, 48 hours, ideally 24 hours. So one we say wait, one we say come in as quickly as you can. I think a lot of it depends on your risk factors. If you are somebody with diabetes or chronic lung disease or you're on medicines that make your immune system not work so well, if you're a little kid, especially under two, if you're an older individual, especially with some other health problems, um, those are people that we'd be more likely to consider the Tamiflu for. So if you're feeling absolutely wretched and miserable, come in as soon as, as possible because the, we may have something we can do for you, especially if you're in one of those high-risk groups. If you're not in one of those high-risk groups, it's okay to stay home 
But if you're short of breath, if you're dizzy, um, you know, if you're really feeling sick, don't be afraid to get checked out. Even if we just tell you, you know, you're just going to have to wait this out because some people get extremely sick. So it's not foolish to go in. It's not foolish to go in, but you don't have to. Okay. The one advantage of uh, medical care in the past 20 years has been, if you had told somebody this 20 years ago, they would call, well, we can see you uh, a week from now, or there was always a delay. Now, medicine recognizes that some people need to get in right away, and it's so nice that there is that urgent care that is provided by the clinic. We always have an urgent care team, and you know, it can happen that we still get overwhelmed, but for the most part, we, we have pretty good capacity to see people. But I also don't want people spending their money unnecessarily because even if you have good insurance, you have a copay. So if you've got a sore throat and scratchy nose and you're sneezing and you're coughing, but you're not short of breath and you're not running fevers and, um, you know, you're you're not dizzy. You're you, okay. You, you stay can, home. You can stay home. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, we're going to take our first break. We appreciate the calls coming in. We'll get to those right after these words. Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening today. I am Joan Hogan, and with me in the studio is Dr. Deb Johnston, who's a uh, general, I always want to say general practice, which is wrong. The correct term is family medicine (laughs) Medicine. physician. I almost have to read it to get it right. Family medicine physician. Dr. Johnston has been talking to us about the flu and what you can do to stay healthy. And we had a caller just before the program began that asked about the fact that she wants to know if her infant is safe from the flu because she did get a flu shot and now she is nursing her baby. Is the fact that she's nursing her baby give that immunization to the baby as well? Not as much as you'd hope. Oh. Um, so it's really important that anybody in an infant's environment get their flu shot. Um, I know physician moms who won't let grandma and grandpa come see the baby if grandma and grandpa haven't had their flu shot. So it's it's really important that anybody in the baby's environment get their flu shot, get their pertussis, their tetanus shot. Um, unfortunately, the breastfeeding doesn't really transfer significant antibodies to the baby. If the baby is six months old, the baby can get his or her own flu shot. The first year a child gets the flu shot, they need two shots a month apart, and then it's just one shot from then on. So um, good hand washing, try to avoid sick people, um, try to avoid the public as much as possible, cocoon that baby by getting everybody in the baby's environment to get their flu shot, Um, wear a mask if she gets sick, uh, and get the baby the flu shot as soon as they can. I I worry a lot about infants and influenza. It's a terrible disease for babies. Okay, well this mother will be cautious. Yes, I'm sure she will. Thanks for the advice. Uh, We had a call and it had to do with cerebral palsy. Haven't Mm. heard that much about it. This uh, woman said, our friend's child has been diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Can you tell me if there have been any recent breakthroughs and what is expected for this child's lifestyle? You know, cerebral palsy is such a variable, variable condition. And, you know, I think we all kind of have this image of cerebral palsy and um, severely disabled individuals. It's important to recognize that cerebral palsy is kind of what we call a static condition for the as a general rule so that means that the deterioration the the muscle difficulties that this individual has 
does not typically progress and get worse as as they get older now obviously weak muscles have more trouble as you get older and and those kinds of things when you're 60 you just have more trouble than you did when you were 20 um but this is some kind of a injury that happens before the baby is born usually during pregnancy we always used to think that this was something that happened at delivery but really most of the data now suggests that it's something that happens before birth so People can have a variety of different um, consequences for having cerebral palsy. It tends to be a condition where the muscles are weak or stiff uh, or what we call spastic, so they don't stretch very well. People may have uh, particularly difficulties with walking, I think is kind of the, the classic thing. There's a lot of therapy that can be done, and that's really important. The sooner that individual gets into therapy and gets that skilled assistance, the better. Sometimes people will get medications. Um, sometimes they'll get injections. There are some surgeries that can be done for young people to kind of help with their function. And there are specialists that are kind of what we call physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists that deal with this. We have a great resource uh, down in Sioux Falls. It used to be called Children's Care, and now I'm blanking on what it's called. Um, But it's there. But it's there. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot of hope for this individual, and this this child um, could grow up to be president. So, you know, cognitively, there there does not tend to be consequences. So um, that means their mind will be there. Their (laughs) mind will be there. They may not win a Heisman, but uh, (laughs) they might win a Nobel Prize. You know, it seems as though with this question, it surprised me because I, you know, many years ago, you heard more about cerebral palsy. Is it down? Are there fewer numbers or they're just getting better care? I I don't know what the statistics are with that. Um, I suspect that it has a lot more to do with um, more advanced care, more advanced treatment, and helping individuals to reach their full potential and earlier recognition. Okay. Well, that, I'm sure that that helped that woman. You know, when your friend happens to a friend, you want to know something about yeah. it and be aware. But you don't necessarily want to. You don't want to be a pain about it, questions. right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So you yep. filled it filled her in. Thank you so much. We had another caller who wants to know about mammograms. If you're over sixty, can you stop taking those breast exams? Um, w- not after 60. We usually recommend continuing mammograms until about 75. There's certainly some individual um, kind of variation in that. I think that uh, medicine is not really a one-size-fits-all, uh, although we certainly have kind of one-size-fits-all guidelines. Uh, typically, what I always want to point out to women is the older you are, the higher your risk of breast cancer. So you're more likely to develop breast cancer at 70 than you were at 50 than you were at 40. All of those women can get breast cancer. I don't want to hear that. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> <laughs> Does not make my day. Okay. Um, it, Why so is that? Just it, it's just an age-related condition. Oh, it is. Just like, okay. You know, just like most things, it gets yeah. worse as you get older. Um, so typically, I'll look at the individual's overall state of health. I'll look at their family history. I mean, if you're 75 and you've outlived all of your family members, well, you know, you're probably not going to be 100. But if you're 75 and all of your grandparents live to be 100 and your parents are still going strong, you're your odds you, are pretty your good. Your odds are pretty <laughs> good, especially if you're in good health. So typically I look at it and I say, 
you know, here's an individual who's in good health, they're vigorous, they're active, um, they're not the very advanced elderly, they're not 85 or 90 years old, and I think a mammogram is a reasonable thing to do. Okay, so do you suggest women still get a yearly exam, or men and women both? What do you think? You know, I think that an annual physical exam is a great opportunity to sit down and kind of review your current health, say, are you due for your colonoscopy, are you due for your mammogram, are you due for your pap smear, hey, let's talk about prostate cancer screening, let's talk about colon cancer screening, let's talk about immunizations, let's just kind of take that opportunity to sit down and say, okay, what, where are you, what are your family history risk factors, what do we need to do to keep you healthy? Uh, I usually talk about wearing your seat belt and keeping the guns locked up when I talk to people <laughs> at their physicals. Not everybody's quite that OCD as I am. <laughs> um, but I think that there's some value in that annual exam. Um, we don't typically do a lot of lab work. Maybe we'll do a blood sugar or cholesterol test. Um, if you've got a family history of thyroid problems or there's something else that we need to, to look at, we may look at that. We don't do routine chest x-rays or EKGs or those kinds of things. It's more of a overview. Now, Medicare doesn't pay for a physical the way most of us think of physicals. They'll pay for an annual wellness exam, which covers a lot of the same kinds of things uh, and is usually provided by one of the nurses. Um, so it's it's not the same kind of hands-on, get naked kind of experience that <laughs> that people are, are used to. Um, but I think that there's still some value in okay. that. Well, thank you. We are due to take our next break. If you have any questions, give us a call at 692-1430. We'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Joan Hogan here, and in the studio with me is Dr. Deb Johnston, who is a family medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Good to be here, Joan. Thank I'm you, Deb. It. Now, we just talked about uh, breast cancer and the need for the test, but uh, one person called in and wanted to know, is there a genetic tie-in to breast cancer? Absolutely, there is. There is. Um, okay. It is, however, really important to realize that your single biggest risk for breast cancer isn't whether you had a family member have breast cancer, it's being a woman. So <laughs> when my mother had breast cancer, my family gets no medical privacy, but <laughs> everybody else does, but not my <laughs> not family. Not your family. Not my family. When my mother had breast cancer, her breast cancer surgeon told her that the majority of the women that he takes care of have no family history of breast cancer. Oh. So it's really important to recognize that just having no one in your family have it does not mean that you're safe. So you still need those mammograms, you still need need those checkups. Um, having said that, there certainly are genetic connections that can greatly increase your risk. So if we see people who have a family history, a strong family history of breast cancer, let's say they had a sister, they had a mother, um, maybe they had a couple aunts, we start wondering if there might be a connection. And oftentimes if women are diagnosed with breast cancer, particularly if they're diagnosed with breast cancer, 
before menopause, so those earlier women in their 40s and younger, they may get tested to see if they carry one of those genes. That helps not only their own family know if they've got a risk for an increased risk, um, but it also helps know helps us to know are you at higher likelihood to get another breast cancer? Are you at higher likelihood for ovarian cancer or colon cancer? There's a lot of these genetic uh, connections that kind of run in packs, so to speak. So um, it may be something that uh, will change what we do for that individual. Now, let's say that nobody in the family's been tested, nobody's had anything identified, maybe they're all back home in Europe or, or Africa or wherever it is. Um, if I have someone that I think is at higher risk for breast cancer, I will send them down to uh, the high-risk breast clinic and they will go through some models and predictions and look at the family history and be able to make a prediction about how likely it is that this individual has some kind of a genetic condition. And then they can do some targeted testing to try to uncover that and see if that's true or not. So if you are at higher risk for breast cancer, um, if you're worried about that family history, by all means, come in and talk with your doctor and see if that's something that might be an appropriate place for you to go and, and think about getting that genetic counseling done. When you're talking about that, in the past few years, we have really seen an increase in genetic medicine. Do we you find that that's explosion. a benefit? Um, you know, I do. It's Obviously, I have some patients that are involved in that. They have um, genetic risks that put them at higher risk for various types of cancer, and, and they have different screening than the average, average individual. Where I actually find the genetics particularly helpful for me is uh, in testing people to see how they metabolize certain medications, uh, particularly medicines that I use for depression or anxiety or ADHD or some of those kinds of things. Um, you know, our bodies with a lot of our medicines have to process them to turn them on or turn them off. And it can be helpful to me helpful to me to say this person doesn't process this medicine correctly maybe I should use a different medication so I'll use that particularly if I have somebody where we've tried maybe three or four different depression medicines and they just haven't responded the way I want them to um, sometimes it can help me narrow down the field so we don't just kind of keep going through the list and saying well let's try this one now let's try this one now let's try this one um, I could at least eliminate some that I think you're probably not going to do well on and try something different. So you found a benefit to I found, you? I found Good. it beneficial to me in, in my practice, even though I, you know, I send people off for genetic counseling when we're looking at cancer or when they've been diagnosed with cancer. They have to have a specialist involved, but um, this is something that I see and do in my regular practice. Good. Well, we're due to take our final break. We appreciate the calls coming in. Any more questions, g give us a call at 692-1430. And we'll be back with Dr. Johnston right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Joan Hogan here, and in the studio with me is Dr. Deb Johnston. And Dr. Johnston has been addressing a lot of issues. We appreciate the calls coming in. You were just talking about genetic testing and how it's helped you with people who are 
dealing with um, depression, mm -hmm. and a call I wanted to know about um, OCD in kids. Now, that's not depression, I know, but it's OCD is what is obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, so it's this, well, this person wanted. I'm cutting you off, but this is the question. My grandson has exhibited OCD symptoms, and his mother has him taking a natural supplement that seems to be helping. It doesn't seem harmful. There really now the question is: Is there really any known cure for OCD? And what do you suggest for OCD? And do you, do you think the mother's doing okay with a natural remedy? Variety of questions. A variety huh? of questions there with that. So um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is kind of classified as an anxiety disorder. And, you know, I think everybody has that familiar people who count things and check things and have to check their locks and wash their hands over and over and over again. Um, if uh, some of the older callers may remember the movie As Good As It Gets with Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson had, had OCD in that in that movie. Um, so there are treatments for OCD. There's not really cures so much for OCD. The natural course of that problem tends to kind of wax and wane. So sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's better. Um, counseling can be very helpful for individuals to kind of help them identify their triggers and, and find other things. You know, if, if my OCD is I've got to touch my faucet three times after I wash my hands, but I don't have to spend my whole day washing my hands, you know, that's, that's not, not interfering. That. That's not interfering with my life, but it can really interfere with people's lives. Um, the natural remedy is a really tough one. Um, there are a lot. There's a lot of response to just about anything we do to a placebo. So before we can say something's effective, we want to compare it to a placebo. We want to say, okay, here's 100,000 people, and half of them get our treatment, and half of them get a, a sugar pill, and is there a difference in how these people respond? So if this child is doing really well on that natural remedy and his life seems to be happy and doing what they want not having it it occupied it's tempting to say absolutely you just keep that up you do have to be a little bit careful with supplements and natural remedies because they are not regulated and they are not um, watched over if something is sold as a supplement they have to be careful how they how they word it but if it's sold as a supplement they don't have to prove that it works. They don't even have to prove that it's safe in order to sell it. So there's a lot of kind of herbal and natural remedies that I think do have a role, um, but there's not always a lot of data out there, and there's not a lot of control over the manufacturing process. And the government has to prove that something is dangerous, that has to prove that people are dying before they can take it off of the remedy. Ephedra is a great example of that a decade or so ago. What was that? Ephedra. Okay, and what so is... So it, it was a stimulant, kind of a weight loss, energy oh, stimulant. Okay. Um, so there's... Uh, I am always very cautious with remedies, with herbal remedies and natural, natural products, which is not to say that my medicines are without risks, but I have a better understanding of what those risks are, and I know that there's some 
oversight and supervision of that manufacturing process. So it's a little bit of a buyer beware situation do your research. The National Institutes of Health has um, a database about natural remedies, and uh, you know there's some good, reliable information out there. Um, if people are selling them to you, I'm always more cautious about what they have to say about them because they have a, a definite reason not to. Uh, they're looking not for to the be money, objective. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. which is not yeah. to say that everybody who does that is is in it for the money, but um, you do have to be a little more careful. Okay. Well, let's hope that uh, this child will be okay, and maybe we'll outgrow it. As you said, it comes and goes. It kind of waxes and wanes. Okay. They'll probably always be a little more prone to anxiety, but there's a lot of effective treatments out there. Good. Okay, thank you so much. Our half hour is closed. We hope all of you, it has flown by. We hope you've all enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. As always, you can hear more about Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org, where you may also learn more about the exciting activities of the Healing Words Foundation. Tomorrow night, Dr. Johnston will be Mm. visible to you on uh, South Dakota Public Television on call with the Prairie Doc at 7 o'clock. Be sure to watch that. My thanks to Dr. Deb Johnston for joining me today. Thank you, Joan. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you, Deb. And thanks to all of you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. Thank you for your questions. Definitely. I'll close with Dr. Holmes' weekly reminder. Stay healthy out there, people.